Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, while there are a ton of important issues related to the tech world getting, well, I would say renewed focus this year, uh, one of the big ones certainly is the importance of broadband access in the U.S. It's really been a central focus during the pandemic uh, when so many of us are now doing everything at home via the Internet. Work, school, socializing are all now online activities. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been recording these podcasts from home, which is using my broadband from the uh, local ISP Sonic. So if there are any troubles with my connectivity today in recording this, we can blame them on Sonic. And thankfully, we've got Sonic CEO Dane Jasper on as our guest, so that'll make it easy. <laughs> Not that I ever have any problems with Sonic. Uh, Dane has been on the show before, a few years back, and I always appreciate his insights into all things related to broadband for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, Sonic has always been widely respected as a customer-first broadband provider, uh, which I would say is quite different than uh, most other broadband providers, uh, especially the big guys. Uh, and on top of that, he's been willing to speak his mind about the policies and rules that he recognizes are harmful to both consumers and to uh, smaller ISP competitors. So, Dane, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so let's start off with a discussion on Sonic and, and how it's been dealing with the pandemic. Uh, what's what's the situation for you guys that you've seen over the last few months? Well, it's uh, it's certainly been an adjustment. We saw a huge increase in consumption usage. Um, you know, when shelter in place went into effect, usage spiked by about 40%, wow. particularly on outbound, right? Everyone went from, you know, coming home from work and watching Netflix mm -hmm. to staying home all day and, uh, you know, two or three or four family members engaging in distance learning, work from home, Zoom and Teams and so on. So we saw not only a big increase in usage, but a, uh, a shift in the usage patterns towards outbound, which given that we're a fiber to the home provider delivering symmetric uh, gigabit service, that was a really good fit for the product. The other huge thing that we've seen is um, I've heard there's like a, a big movement for home improvement. You know, they're running out mm -hmm. of appliances because people are staying home. They're working on a lot of projects. One of the things that we saw was I think a lot of people who were kind of putting off switching from cable to fiber. Huh. When they got a shelter-in-place order, everyone was like, I'm going to repaint the bathroom, we need a new dishwasher, <laughs> and it's time to switch to fiber. So um, wow. it, it's really unfair. I mean, this pandemic lands unevenly yeah. on individuals, uh, on, on employees, uh, in different industries, and on industries. I have a friend who owns movie theaters, and I'm afraid to ask him about, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have no idea what his business is doing. It's He's, he's shut down. And on the other side, in our business as a fiber-to-home provider, uh, there's a big tailwind in, in the adoption that we're seeing of all of the technologies, entertainment, distance learning, work from home, all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that's been talked about a lot is how it's really put attention on the sort of still existing digital divide, right? And, you know, the fact that, a lot of people, you know, don't really have broadband, or if they do have broadband, it's very limited and certainly limited in choice. Um, you know, uh, you know, as I mentioned jokingly in the intro, I do use Sonic, but I, I am not on the fiber to the home yet uh, because uh, it is still being installed in my neighborhood, and in fact, pretty much every day, I still see Sonic trucks. Uh, here and there blocking my street, uh, but I'm happy to have them blocking my street because I know it means soon, hopefully, I will have some fiber here. Um, yeah. But, you know, for lots of people, there's really there's there's really not much choice and, and, and in some cases, no choices. Um, and I don't feel like, 
you know, there's been some discussion of, and you have there like a few articles here and there that sort of talk about it, but it doesn't seem like an urgent issue um, for for policymakers. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, uh, broadband internet access in America is a failed competitive market. It is an oligopoly, and for higher speed services, you know, if you want greater than 25 megabits. In the majority of American households, you have precisely one choice. Right. And, you know, that is, for consumers, a huge source of frustration. Um, you know, cable companies are often ranked as some of the most hated companies in America. The industry as a whole, you look at net promoter scores, you know, survey scores on whether or not consumers would recommend a carrier. Uh, they're negative numbers in most cases. <laughs> and uh, so... and. You know, this is America. We invented the internet, and this is the cradle of uh, capitalism. And you know, you'd like to think that this problem would have been solved by now, but um, it's on the one hand, it's a hard problem to solve. On, on the other, you have regulatory policy making, which has steered us towards um, an oligopoly or duopoly outcome. And uh, and that's that's something I think a lot of consumers. Don't understand how and why that occurred, and and but they're certainly very frustrated with the outcomes. Yeah, and and do we want to go into a little bit of the background about why why you think that occurred? I mean, I know, you know, in in the early days when I first got on the internet, I had a choice of you know thousands of of ISPs. Uh, I mean, it was all dial up at the time. It was sort of pre, but even even yeah. when we started to move to to broadband and DSL in the early days, you know there were there were a variety of options, and those those dwindled over time. So, yeah. do you want to just sort of give a, a little history lesson for folks? Yeah, it's um, it is interesting. I mean, you mentioned that you had thousands of choices at the beginning, right? And and I started in the in this business in 1994. And I remember there used to be a directory of mm -hmm. ISPs, and it was like a big yellow pages. Yeah. It was an, an inch thick, and there were 6,500 ISPs listed. And you'd look up your state and your area code. You'd find a few, and you'd have many to choose from, so long as they had a local number in your area. And, um, and then on top of that, you had national uh, players, you know, CompuServe and America Online and so on. And so in the era of dial-up, you had vibrant choice. And as we moved to DSL, uh, you still generally had a lot of choices. And the reason for that was the classification of DSL was as a telecommunications service. It was a common carriage, an application which was available to all uh, service providers via a carrier. And so for DSL, you might choose from Sonic or Earthlink or DSL Extreme or a hundred others. And... Um, the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act that was passed by um, a Republican Congress, signed by Bill Clinton, a Democrat, uh, was signed in the Library of Congress in 1996, a, a court, sort of momentous location that, that really touched on this sort of access to the world's information and what the Telecom Act was supposed to foster. And what the Telecom Act... Uh, created was an open framework for competitive access for competitive local exchange carriers. And the intent was to bring competition to local um, telecommunication services, including like dial tone and local and, and long distance calling, mm -hmm. and also to next generation applications like digital subscriber line or, or internet access. And uh, so in the late 90s, there was this big movement towards open competition. And then in, in 2000, um, uh, Bush was elected. Uh, so you have now a Republican in the, in the White House. And the, the administration, uh, among, you know, among all the agencies, you think about the administrative agencies, the EPA and Department of Energy and the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC has five commissioners. And the administration's party appoints three of the five, and right. the opposition party appoints two. So you kind of go back and forth between federal communications leadership that is uh, one party and the other. And, and with that brings philosophical changes. And, and the big change that, that occurred in the early 2000s was a viewpoint, not that they wanted lots of competitors on a shared infrastructure, 
but that they wanted to foster intermodal competition. In other words, they wanted the telephone company to compete with the cable company. And at that time, broadband over power lines was a technology that was in development. <laughs> so they thought the power company would be an internet provider. Right. That was the, and then the, there's, the great broadband the, hope was the power line companies. Yeah, so that was an idea. And then there's wireless, and then there was satellite. And, and they thought it would be better to deregulate open access and, tr and, and wide competition. Um, and, and I think kind of the dot-com crash and the, the bankruptcies of a lot of competitive local exchange carriers served as a convenient vehicle to point at and say, look, that didn't work. There were too many competitors. So let's roll back the regulations. And so, you know, from um, uh, FCC Chairman Michael Powell uh, to Chairman Kevin Martin, that eight-year era was a time of deregulation and fostering intermodal competition, which given that broadband over power lines didn't work and, and wireless is really great for mobile but quite, quite expensive for fixed, mm -hmm. led to a duopoly outcome, cable and telecom. And, um, so, and this is in contrast to regulatory policies in, in Europe and Asia. Uh, in Europe, they... Uh, adopted policies very similar to the U.S.'s 1996 Telecom Act, and then they stuck with them. And uh, in, in European nations, you'll have many, many choices of Internet access provider, and as a result, lower prices, higher speeds. And uh, if you look at international data from the OECD, for example, uh, the United States, consumers in the United States pay more per megabit of internet access than uh, than consumers in any other developed nation, and uh, so it's an interesting regulatory history that's led us here. Yeah. And you know the, the feeling that people end up with is this frustration. I I, I hate the cable company, and uh, so there is a regulatory backstory behind all of that. Yeah, and and I think it's it's fascinating. You know, one of the stories that I keep hearing, you know. Um, that I don't think is actually supported by the data was the claims that, you know, because of this regulatory approach that Europe was unable to, to handle the pandemic, the same sort of increase in traffic. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's an accurate story. I don't know if you've heard something different, but you know, from what I had seen was that you did have, what is true is that you had, uh, some some politicians in the EU ask some of the companies like Netflix in particular to try and throttle th throttle down the quality um, in the expectation that the networks would get overloaded, but without any actual evidence that they were over overloaded. And I think some of the companies did so, and I think some of the companies did so in the US. But just because the politicians asked, I've seen a lot of people, including uh, the current FCC chair, claim that it was proof that the European regulatory model left it unprepared for, for the pandemic, whereas the where, as his uh, US model had us resilient and ready to go. Yeah, and I, I don't think that you can draw a line between those two things. You know, fundamentally what you had there, as I see it, was European regulators saying that work from home and distance learning is more important than entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so the entertainment providers like Netflix should voluntarily or mandatorily decrease the quality of their, of their streams. And... That's not the way it's supposed to work. Right. And, you know, you think about a, a video stream from, from a company like Netflix. It's, it's HTTP live streaming with variable bitrate. It uses as much bandwidth as is available. And when right. there isn't, isn't enough, well, then it downgrades the speed. And what you see is SD video and blurry video and then eventually buffering. And, you know, that is how the Internet's supposed to work. The applications are supposed to fit into the available capacity. And so I, I don't think it's a reasonable claim to say, you know, America was better prepared for the pandemic uh, because we didn't go and ask Netflix to do something. I think <laughs> more so European regulators were uh, being as proactive as they could. And, uh, and I think you'll find American households, particularly on uh, congested cable systems with inadequate upstream, saying that they really had problems with distance learning and work from home uh, during the business day, during the school day, 
despite you know claims by the FCC that America was unaffected. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's it's funny how these stories get spun <laughs> in, in, in one way or another. Um, so because I'm sure it's going to come up for people who aren't aware of this, the, all of all this history, where does the, the net neutrality fight fit into this debate about regulations? Well, net neutrality is, it's an interesting topic. And, and, you know, I should say first, I'm not a content source like Netflix or, or uh, Amazon Prime. So I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't, um, uh, you know, I don't have content that would be disadvantaged. As a carrier, and on the other side, um, as a carrier, if my competitors, you know, a cable operator, a telecom incumbent, uh, are uh, slowing down certain types of traffic or causing, you know, video quality to be poor, despite a speed test being awesome, um, that's great. I win more customers. Mm-hmm. When service providers, there was news uh, recently about a cable, major national cable operator rolling usage caps into more states and uh, charging fees. For consumers, that's bad news. It's awful. For right. operators like Sonic, it's like, great. You know, the, the, the worse they treat their customers, <laughs> the more likely we win customers. Right. Now, from a, the perspective of our policy viewpoint around neutrality, uh, it's something we have uh, been vocal about and supported at state uh, and federal legislatures and at the at the state and federal regulators, um, because fundamentally, we are a big dumb pipe to the internet, and you don't actually care about getting to Sonic, right? You care about getting to all the great, amazing applications that are on the internet, right? I, you know, we've been in business since uh, 26 years now, and we've been really lucky to enter an industry that has become transformative to the society around us. And I feel really lucky to be able to charge people $40 a month to get to all this great stuff on the internet. And the idea that I would slow some of it down or try and charge Netflix a fee to interconnect because they got a bunch of customers that they want to serve. Well, those are my customers who expect if they're buying a gigabit service from me that they should be able to stream some 4K video to a couple TVs <laughs> right. and uh, double dipping and asking uh, a source of video content to, to pay up extra is is just really um, – it's the kind of behavior that only a monopolist could justify. <laughs> and and I do remember the, the, the then-CEO of a large telecommunications carrier, kind of the beginning of this neutrality debate – uh, uttered the words, you know, they won't uh, ride my pipes for free. Yes, you know ab- about content companies, but those pipes are being paid for by end users, <laughs> yes. right? You, you're you're not buying a gigabit into Sonic, and and then that's that's where you care to go. You're buying a a connection to the internet, all the things you want there, and so it's really wrongheaded as a carrier to think you should charge content. And for that reason, we've supported policymaking around neutrality that would mandate that carriers treat traffic neutrally. Um, although, honestly, the, the, the behaviors that they're engaging in today, particularly around usage caps and additional fees, um, only serve us because they, they do drive uh, customers towards alternatives. Yeah. Um, if the customers realize they have the alternatives or, you know, in some cases, if they actually do have them. Well, and that is honestly the biggest challenge that we have, right? Sonic serves today three markets in California, Sacramento, L.A., and the greater San Francisco Bay Area. And we're building fiber-to-the-home networks. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're activating network in Burlingame right now on the peninsula. And and that means that we're sending postcards to people's homes. Or we're, we're literally knocking on doors, ringing doorbells, standing 10 feet back in a <laughs> in a KN95 mask and asking them to uh, consider switching. And uh, and they haven't heard of us. And, uh, you know, and we're, we're a mid-sized regional provider. We've got almost 600 employees. We've been around for two decades. But when we ring the doorbell and say, hi, you know, we're with Sonic, uh, they say, well, you mean the, the hamburger joint? Or, or <laughs> you know, what is this? And I think consumers in the U.S., um, it's like they've been in this sort of abusive relationship with a cable <laughs> operator for a long, long time. And, and they're not uh, really aware uh, that there may be alternatives. 
And uh, so it is something that, you know, I would encourage, uh, uh, you know, households all across the U.S., um, you know, don't just sign up with your local cable company, but look around and see if there is an alternative. And and in some markets, it'll be Ting. In others, it's Google Fiber. Um, in, in others, it's Socket Internet in Missouri. Uh, it's GorgeNet up in Oregon. Um, there are companies like Sonic scattered across the U.S. that provide some great, great alternatives. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back to one of the, the points you made a little bit earlier, which was the... Uh, you know, not riding my pipes for free. Um, there was uh, uh, someone else. There was a, I know that was a, the CEO. Uh, that was Verizon CEO who said that at the time. But I, and there was a lobbyist who had said something similar um, specifically about Google that it was saying Google gets, gets all their broadband for free. And, and I had written something saying like, uh, if you want to keep saying that, how about you agree to pay uh, Google's broadband bills <laughs> and silence, no response at all. <laughs> it's just like the, they, the, the willingness to mislead people about these things is, is really annoying to me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of misdirection and, and at its heart, the internet uh, is a system of interconnection yeah. between networks that want something and networks that have something. And so you think of, of Google, they have a, database of the world's information organized and you'd like to search it and on the other side you know you're connected to a network that uh, that provides a last mile pipe all the way to your house and uh, and you want to get to that thing and um, and that relationship of interconnection is is critical yeah um, so let's let's try and look forward a little bit um, uh, you know, in a month, we, we should have a new president inaugurated in January, and, and with it should come a new FCC, in theory, if the Senate allows for confirmations. Um, what uh, what do you expect we'll see with a, with a Biden administration and a, a Biden FCC? Well, you know, I understand they have an FCC transition team uh, stood up. At this point, and and we've heard some of their um, uh, their goals, and um, you know fundamentally, it's it's clear that this pandemic, and um, you know dealing with you know how to uh, help businesses and help consumers uh, is is really going to be key. Um, there's also discussion about a broadband bill mm-hmm. that would provide federal funding uh, to build network to unconnected areas. And um, I, I think, you know, there is a, a pretty large number of homes in America where you cannot get broadband at all. And, uh, and there may be a satellite service, and it's, it's really poor. Um, and so there's a lot of appetite to spend money to connect those households. There's also, I'd say, the majority of homes in the U.S., there's broadband, but it's not great or it's too expensive. Uh, and then there's digital divide and equity issues around affordability and knowledge about, you know, what, why they need a connection, how to use it, what equipment is required, those kinds of components as well. So it's a multifaceted problem. I, I'm confident that this FCC um, in, in the next administration will, will take on a lot of these issues and try to move the ball forward. Uh, yeah. And I mean, for, for the areas that are disconnected, right. I mean, one of the big challenges is always like, you know, when it's, when they're really remote, it's obviously incredibly expensive in order to, um, to, to provide access to those areas. And so there's always talk about different things, whether it's, you know, satellite or some sort of wireless, but those technologies just don't seem to be nearly as, as good or robust or, or as fast. Um, do, do you think that there's an approach that works for the for the the more rural and and uh, you know kind of out of the way places? It it, it has to be a multifaceted approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, the the idea of subsidizing the construction and potentially operation of networks to far flung areas uh, is not a new concept, and we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, after the 2008 recession, there was $7 billion allocated to deploy right. network into new areas. Uh, the the um, rural uh, 
uh, utility service has loans and grants. Uh, states have programs. And so there's there's been a lot of efforts around deployment. I think one of the flaws right now that we see in, in federal programs and state programs is um, that they're accepting of broadband access that's middling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the program, the... Um, the RDOF program that's underway right now, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, allocates billions of dollars to build networks that could be as little as 25 megabits for the next decade. And 25 megabits, is, that's <laughs> table stakes for right. a, a me- medium-sized household today. And it's going to be laughably poor five and six and nine and a half years from now. And um, so I think where terrestrial wireline services are being deployed, it should be mandated that those be fiber-based, fiber all the way to the premise, because that is future-proof technology, yeah. you know, gigabit today and much faster in the future. However, as you point out, there are really far-flung locations. You know, somebody is five miles down a farm road, and, you know, fiber deployment depending upon the market and the deployment type, aerial or underground, you can spend 25000 to $150,000 per mile hmm. to build fiber. And if you're doing that to reach one home, you can see that becoming <laughs> infeasible. Yes. And uh, so there does need to be a sort of, I think, three-tier approach, fiber being the highest priority where feasible. Fixed wireless services, those could be from a mobile carrier or a wireless ISP. Uh, being the sort of second tier, but target speeds in the you know 100 megabit plus or minus range, right? And then the third tier and sort of last resort is satellite services, and where historically satellite has been geosynchronous, so it's in orbit in a fixed point as the Earth rotates. What that means is you're going way into outer space and back, and then the content goes up and back again. It's about one second of latency. And that precludes a lot of applications. And also, there's a real capacity limitation. That one satellite has a number of antennas pointing at different regions of the country, and everybody in that region has to share the capacity. And low-Earth orbit satellite systems, uh, like like um, the SpaceX platform and the OneWeb platform, um, have a lot of promise yeah. around bringing faster, lower-latency services that I think will be a great fit for rural markets. And so, uh, you know, regulators who are uh, spending, uh, setting up auctions and spending money to connect the unconnected households, um, the, the one major flaw I see today is the, the acceptance of mediocre services. And uh, so to say, well, if, if households can get 25 megabits because a local telephone company can deploy a little bit of VT, VDSL, for example, and then kick the can down the road for a decade, it's really going to come back to bite us in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. One of the things that's so frustrating to me about this discussion is that, um, you know, I was uh, I was in, in business school in 1996, and one of my professors was a, was a uh, economist named Alan McAdams. I don't know if you ever ran across him. Probably not. But... Um, he had uh, he had sort of a, a weird and interesting career. He had been uh, one of on the economic advisory council for Richard Nixon uh, back in the seventies, um, and he had been one of the government's expert witnesses in the uh, IBM antitrust trial in the eighties. Um, but in the nineties, one of the things that he became very very focused on was broadband. Uh, and internet access. And, and this is like 96, 97, he was writing papers about how uh, we should figure out a way to get fiber to the home of every home in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, you know, 20, yep. 20, 23, 24 years ago. Um, and he, he was, he would uh, get very upset at people who would suggest, you know, that that was, you know, that's too much. Nobody needs that. Or that like, you know, wireless would, could, could function. He's like, no, you know, you need, you know, full fiber access. It's the only thing that's really going to, to do it. And you need it all everywhere. Um, and he was, he was perhaps ahead of his time, but exactly correct. Yeah. 
And, and it's interesting to think think historically about the infrastructure that we've deployed to homes. You know, you, you had homes scattered across America, and the first major piece of infrastructure was electrification. Mm-hmm. We brought electricity to every home in America through a rural electrification act. And so getting getting homes so that they could have light, students could study, read a book at, at nighttime, uh, was transformative. A farm having electric equipment in the barn uh, was, was transformative. And so that was the first big piece of infrastructure. The second was we made a commitment to bring a phone line to every home. Mm-hmm. Universal service, um, you know, one network universal service, was sort of Atlantic Telephone and Telegraph's uh, pitch to, to the administration. And they got a, a monopoly in exchange for... Uh, subsidized builds to to every household. So a second piece of infrastructure was built to every single home. The third was cable television. And while cable television never reached every home, that was the third major piece of infrastructure. And you think about the telephone wire then became a broadband connection Mm -hmm. through innovations in technology, digital subscriber line and you know, faster and faster DSL and pair bonding and so on. But we're really wedging broadband down a piece of physical infrastructure that was designed to deliver a voice telephone call. And then data over cable, a DOCSIS. And the DOCSIS protocol allowed a coaxial cable that was designed to carry the, the broadcast of a bunch of television channels across different frequencies in the spectrum that this coaxial cable would carry. And instead, we turn that into a way to pump data towards a whole group of households, and then an individual household would filter out theirs and present it, and we made it bidirectional, and you ended up getting internet access over cable, and coaxial cable is a way better carrier of a bunch of capacity than a twisted pair of copper wires that went to every home, but both of these are not being used for their originally designed purposes. Fiber optic technology is the first technology that was designed to carry you know, broadband data from the start and, uh, you know, an amazing set of innovations and, um, you know, really interesting history. And um, and so, you know, fiber optic is this amazing um, waveguide, you know, mm-hmm. a blinking light at one end comes out the other end with astounding amounts of capacity. And, um, you know, just as telephone lines lasted us, you know, many decades, cable lasts us many decades. Fiber will have a life that goes out, you know, 50 to 100 years, and, and we'll be using those networks for a long, long, long time because the equipment on the ends will just keep getting faster, better, cheaper, and, uh, and the amount of capacity that can be delivered is, is really, really massive. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really something. It's just amazing how little of it there has been and how little investment there's been, which actually, you know, raises an interesting question, um, you know, about since you're in the middle of, of building out, you know, more and more fiber deployments, I mean, what, what, what goes into that? Like, what is, what does it actually take to build out? Because so few companies are actually doing it, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, why and sort of what's involved in actually building out a fiber network these days. Yeah, I think, you know, at, at the um, at the most basic level, it's actually really simple, right? It's a cable up on a pole or in a conduit in the ground um, that pr- brings a fiber to your home and back to a central point, and electronics that go on each end of that. So, from that basis, it's it's really a simple process. But from a, the process of business model mm-hmm. and cost. Uh, you know, adoption, marketing, and uptake, um, regulatory barriers, permitting and deployment barriers, competitive barriers. Um, it the the uh, the actualization of all that turns out to be a lot harder than it should be. And um, so, you know, as you mentioned, we're engaged in a, a ton of this, and and um, we've reached a point where uh, a bit over half of our customers are on our own fiber optic network and um, so that's a great milestone but we've got a long way to go and when we look at the number of households in the regions that we serve um, that we can offer fiber to 
uh, it's still a far too small number. So there's a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. And um, it it's an interesting one because... Uh, you know, one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten is like, well, this is great. I'm super happy with this service. Why aren't there like 50 companies just like yours doing this all across the country? <laughs> right. And um, it's it's an interesting one because on the one hand, I, you know, I, we're doing it and, and, you know, profitably and enjoying it. And, and, and I said, well, that's a good question. There, there really should be. Um, but, you know, entities that are well-funded and, and certainly very intelligent like Google – um, you know, stood up a, a, an amazing fiber deployment effort and, and have struggled. And it's been an uneven process for them. And, um, and so, you know, it is a real challenge. On, on the other side right now, I think it's a massive opportunity because this is kind of the, f the first new technology in many decades after cable. And, um, uh, you know, the opportunity, if you are the first to market to deploy fiber, it should be a great opportunity, no matter how rural or small the market is. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to see like five or ten companies running fiber down every street and to every home. And so as a result, it will be, in the end, a, a, an imperfect competitive market, an oligopoly of sorts with three, maybe four choices. And, um, uh, and that, you know, means that there's an opportunity. We see it as a bit of a land rush. Right. Um, you mentioned sort of regulatory and competitive barriers. Do you want to describe what some of those are? Well, the competitive barriers, um, I think the, the, the largest group of competitive barriers that we see come from the, access to the wood utility poles that, hmm. you know, reach the majority of homes in America are, are served with overhead utilities on wood utility poles. And so this is a, you know, Western red cedar that was put in 43 <laughs> years ago. And it's a, you know, 45 foot tall pole with power up on the top and traditionally telephone lines in the middle. And, uh, and so the telephone company generally owns kind of so to speak the bottom half of the pole they've huh. invested in that they have the responsibility for it and they share the cost of maintaining it uh, and acquiring it with the power company and um, that telephone company is obviously now a broadband company and a competitor and you know it's it's certainly not in their interest to see deployment from new market entrants occurring and that just leads to a necessity for a certain amount of regulatory oversight uh, to keep costs in check and, and keep shot clocks in place that, that make sure that the work can get done and that there is a fair market for deployment. And, um, and unfortunately there's a lot of um, small barriers that add up to a lot of dollars, unfortunately that, that slow deployment and mm -hmm. that increase its cost. And then the second category uh, is, you know, localities, you know, cities and counties, um, you know, well-meaning, um, but they, um, you know, they're thinking about the the quality of the pavement. You know, you don't want a bunch of potholes. Uh, they're thinking about safety, as they should. And, uh, and so the process of local permitting mm -hmm. for underground construction varies a lot by communities. And... Um, uh, we, we were doing deployment in one city, and the city required a um, uh, an inspector on site watching each of our individual crews. <laughs> so you'd have a crew of, you know, four to six people working, uh, and then a, um, a city employee or an, uh, an employee of an outside engineering firm that they had contracted kind of sitting in a truck nearby drinking coffee uh, and, and watching. And... Billing us about $160 <laughs> an hour uh, for wow. this person being there. And uh, and then we say, well, we'd like to work 10-hour days because we're rushing to get this done. Right. And that guy would say, well, I, I don't want to work 10-hour days, so you can't. <laughs> um, or we'd like to work this Saturday. And they, well, we don't want to work on Saturday. So, you know, sometimes cities can do things that get in the way. Um, right. On the other side, they can adopt policies that really facilitate deployment. So dig once policies mm -hmm. are, are, are wonderful and important and low impact. Um, 
and, and policies. For, for, for people who don't know what that is, what yep. you want to describe so, a dig once? So a dig once policy says uh, if the city is opening up a street to do some work, uh, if they are, you know, building a new uh, extension of a street, if they're uh, repairing or upgrading a sewer system, those sorts of things, when they've got that open, they will put in conduit for future use for fiber or broadband. And uh, so it allows a city to accumulate a set of pathways that can be used in the future by carriers without opening the streets up again, uh, which is disruptive and costly. And uh, there's one city that, um, uh, that we've partnered with in the East Bay, Brentwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brentwood adopted a dig once policy in 1999. And uh, so all city projects, uh, they included a pair of four-inch conduits down the street, which was great. And when a developer was putting in a subdivision of new homes, traditionally the phone company would get a conduit to every house and the cable company would get a conduit to every house. And anybody that came after that would have to open up the street and build new things. And Brentwood's dig once policy um, required a developer to include one extra pipe and give it to the city. Hmm. And really doesn't add anything to the cost of a project. You think about you're building houses and subdivisions. You're building uh, streets and paving them and putting in fire hydrants and trees and so on. An extra two-inch PVC pipe down the road is not material uh, from a cost perspective. But what it enabled was a pathway to every home that we were able to use and deploy fiber to all those homes. And so cities that are thinking ahead and that that put dig once policies into place today, uh, those policies may take decades to become useful and to have a reasonable inventory of, of new assets that could be deployed into. Um, but, but they're an easy and important policy to adopt. Um, the other areas that cities should look closely at is their pavement reinstatement policies. And this is, this sounds really huh. inside baseball, but I'm interested when a carrier's you know, we'll talk, try and keep it intriguing. Um, when, it, when a carrier is building a network down a street, uh, you need to find the existing utilities, right? right. You're, you're going to be boring down the street or, or um, trenching down the street. There's a water line right about here. There's a gas line right over there. Well, you, you cut a little inspection hole. It's about six inches in diameter. And you vacuum out the soil until you find the water line. Hmm. And then you go over it or you go under it, but you don't hit it, right? right. So this is a, a locate, so utility locate. And, um, and then when you're done, you fill that back in and you pave over it. And the standards for here in California for Caltrans, they want you to pave over uh, a three foot by three foot patch roughly. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but we're working in one city that wants us to repave the entire lane of travel, which is about 13 feet wide, and then they're allowing us to repave only 13 feet across. Now, remember, this is a six-inch hole. Right. So there's no good. There's no good physical reason to do this. Right. Um, and and that is a. They're they're granting that as a variance from their standard, which is that we have to repave the entire city block. Oh my gosh. And and so, you know, these kinds of pavement reinstatement policies, you know, they're well-meaning, right? You don't right. want contractors to come in and tear up your streets and, and leave them in poor condition. But um, a, a three-foot repave over a six-inch hole makes a lot of sense. A you know 13-foot or a, f- a whole city block makes the project infeasible. And so then you skip that street, you skip that block, you skip those homes, or you skip that entire city. And so those policies have knock-on effects that are, that are lead yeah. to unfortunate outcomes. I mean, you can you can totally see where those came from, right? I mean, you had, I'm sure, you know, some some resident complaining about you know patchy streets, you know, and so yeah. somebody decided to put in place a policy that you got to repave the whole thing, and not realizing that yeah. the sort of you know impacts of that. Yeah, and you know, it, it it depends on what's being put in and who's putting it in, and and I think that. Public utilities, you know, particularly as you think about like the power company or, Mm -hmm. you know, in the old days of Monopoly, the Monopoly telephone company, those are what are called rate of return utilities. They they have a Monopoly franchise. They're connecting every home. Every home takes those services 
generally speaking. And if it costs an extra $10,000 to repave a street, well, eventually that's going to come out of the ratepayers' pockets over the entire state. And, right. You know, it's just kind of the way it gets blended around. With broadband, you know, you have a competitive market. It's not a monopoly. There's not that same opportunity. And then the other side is that broadband deployment, or the lack of its deployment, has material economic and educational and equity impacts in a community. Yeah. And so it'd be nice if every time somebody opened up the street, you repave the entire block. That would be beautiful. But on the other side, you really would like to have water service to a home <laughs> without repaving a whole street. Well, I'd say you want to have really good broadband to a home right. maybe without repaving the whole street. So there is a balance to be found there. Uh, I'd say the last policy um, is uh, trenchless construction policies. Hmm. Uh, to, to build to build fiber optic networks, um, they're typically done uh, one of two ways. So, so you know, if you're putting in a sewer liner something, you, you cut a giant trench, you know, it's a two, three foot wide trench that's three to five feet deep, you have steel plates and all that in the road. But when you're putting in a fiber optic cable, you know, this is a cable that's, uh, you know, at its largest, largest cables are about the diameter of your thumb, hmm. less than an inch in diameter. And uh, these can be put in using trenchless technologies like directional boring, which is a sort of steerable drill bit. You sort of drill underground and up and down and left and right down the street. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and micro-trenching, which is a saw blade where you cut at the, you, you cut into the street and uh, and then, you know, maybe that's six to eight, 12 inches deep. You lay the cable into that narrow, less than one inch slot. And uh, so cities making directional boring and micro-trenching uh, a part of their standard allowed construction practices, uh, that's also a key um, enabler for deployment. Yeah, I could see how that would make a big difference. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's, uh, we're working in uh, uh, San Francisco a lot right now, and um, and city of San Francisco does not allow uh, even directional boring, which huh. is... Uh, widely used we we know of no other city that doesn't allow directional boring but san francisco doesn't allow it and uh so we have a neighborhood um in uh, southern san francisco and there's maybe 15,000 homes in that neighborhood and uh there's an area where we have to cross the street at the southern edge of it and we had to open up a trench 5 feet wide huh. and 3 feet deep and repave a huge area, and we spent about sixty-five thousand dollars to uh, to build about fifty feet of of huge trench for a one-inch diameter cable. <laughs> and uh, and it, it did make financial sense there because there's you know ten thousand plus homes on right. the other side of that street. But that would make no sense if that was a residential street like your block and a cul-de-sac, and there were seven houses down that street. Right. Right. And so allowing directional boring and micro-trenching, which is far less costly, um, in, uh, to give you kind of an order of magnitude, you know, micro-trenching is kind of 10 to $20 per foot. Directional boring is sort of 20 to $40 per foot. And open trench is 150 to $500 <laughs> per foot. And, um, and obviously smaller projects drive those costs up. Permitting can drive those costs up. So you, you really want the lowest impact solutions. They're also, directional boring is great because you start at a small look, you know, location, a hole, mm -hmm. and then the drill bit goes underground, and then it, everything's undisturbed until right. you resurface, and, and you don't break up the street along the way. A micro-trenching is great because you're cutting a narrow, less than one-inch slot, and then it's filled in uh, with a with a grout and a sealant. And um, in the meanwhile, like say for example, you've cut across the street and there's traffic traveling back and forth. Well, there's there's no safety concerns. A car can just drive right across the top of this little less than one inch slot. And um, so these these trenchless uh, construction methods are much lower impact than uh, than traditional big open trenches. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I I sort of assumed some of this, but I didn't know all the details behind it's, it. It's it's fu it's funny because I'm I'm a technology person. I'm fascinated by 
uh, you know, internet access and all the components right. that go into that. You know, I'm fascinated by sales and marketing, customer service, but we've had to learn a lot about construction <laughs> and, and really gain a, as much expertise as we can into how to build these things. Because at the end of the day, that's what has to happen, right? If someone needs to go out there and put a shovel in the ground or put plant up in the air on a pole to reach every home in America, just like that economist said was necessary in 1996. It is still necessary today. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, this is great, and it's really fascinating and, and super educational for me, and 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 hopefully for for our listeners as well. So I I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to talk about it and and uh, get people thinking about this stuff, um, and and hopefully more people think about more ways to to make it easier to get you know real fiber broadband access to to more homes because you know it, it would it would help. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 been a need for a long time and this pandemic is certainly making it stark. And um and I think you know it's something that uh well-informed consumers, you know, they know that they want fiber, you know, folks right. got really excited about Google. If you live somewhere Verizon has Fios, you're going to subscribe to that. So you know, technology-minded consumers know that they want this because it's uh, very fast, low latency, very high reliability. It is a little more challenging to get normal American households to understand that, you know, fiber is better than cable, cable is better than DSL, and you really want a fast connection because, you know, your children are working from home or you just bought a new 4K TV or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, you know, folks are busy and not everybody has as much interest in technology as, as, as people like you and I. And uh, so, you know, we have to bring this to them in terms that, uh, that make sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely makes sense. Well, uh, again, uh, thanks for taking the time uh, and, and having this discussion. I, I certainly learned a lot, um, and um, thanks to everyone for listening as well. Uh, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get to grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get to grab a shovel and dig.